Hello, AP Euro students, and welcome to the midterm review for uh, the spring of 24. So the uh, midterm review can be found on our page. Um, let me know if you can't find it. it uh, hopefully it's right there for you. Um, so a couple things about the, the test, first off. Uh, it is multiple choice and essay, so there'll be a bunch of multiple choice questions, and then there is a short answer and then a long answer uh, essay to write. So just be prepared uh, to spend a little bit of time uh, on, uh, on that. Uh, as far as the multiple choice questions go, there are a lot of um, reading, like analyzing, similar to tests you took last semester uh, for, for this course uh, with all the, you know, the, the, the reading, reading you gotta do. Uh, and just remember, for almost every AP thing we do, you know, knowing the, the content is half the battle. Uh, like, you know, knowing the causes of World War One is something, but you also got to be able to apply it um, <clears throat> into the questions and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's probably where the most difficulty comes from is people can get the content. Uh, people are pretty good about memorizing stuff, but then it's, okay, how to apply this to this quote, how to apply this to this map. Uh, or whatever it might be. So I tried to give you as much detail as possible, mainly because I did not make this test. So for my review, I tried to give you as much information as possible about what you're going to see so you can prepare as well as possible. Um, and so I'm going to go over uh, all the content that's on here that I can. Uh, like I can't help you out with the, the map questions and things like that. So there's some things that, you know, I'm going to just kind of skip over. But um, anyways, just... Uh, you know, let me know if you have questions, and uh, away we go. All right, so first up is the European view of non-Europeans in the 19th century. And I think the biggest thing to note here is that uh, Europeans really did not think highly, look down on um, pretty much everybody else, okay? If you were not European, then um, you definitely were not in the, the club, right? Uh, they had ideas of racial superiority, uh, this led to colonialism. This is going to lead to imperialism uh, and just that that whole idea. Okay, uh, and and a lot of it comes from um, you know like social Darwinism. Uh, that was an idea that was being pushed at the time, um, and just the idea that you know there was this competition and um, the the Europeans were were better than everybody else. Public education during the First World War. So the biggest thing here is the disruption that's happening during World War One. <coughs> Uh, regular schooling was definitely, um, definitely, definitely, definitely upended, I guess would be the, 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 the gentle way of saying it. Um, you had schools being closed and repurposed for military actions, things, whatever you want to call it, um, to, to support the war effort. Uh, you had, you know, military actions going on in your schoolyard. You know, maybe not necessarily in the schoolyard, but you had stuff going on uh, right there. Okay, you had teachers and in some cases students being conscripted uh, into the military. Uh, so you had a lot of stuff going on and a lot of uh, a high amount of impact in Europe uh, during World War One on uh, the war or uh, on schooling. All right. Uh, the next two on your midterm review are cartoon analysis and then map analysis. Uh, there's not much I can do there. 
Uh, so we're not going to talk about those. Just be, be prepared and be aware that you'll have to look at some things uh, and make some decisions uh, about what you see. Uh, next up is the changes in the Ottoman Empire from 1815 to 1915. Uh, I think the biggest takeaway is that this time period saw a steady decline uh, in the Ottoman Empire. Okay, uh, you started to, to see uh, basically the, the central government, the government of the Ottoman Empire begin to decline because of some internal and external pressures. It wasn't just one thing, there was a couple of different things um, that were happening uh, as we transition or go from 1815 to 1915. Um, you had a couple of movements like the national nationalist movements um, where you had different uh, groups within the uh, the Ottoman Empire that uh, were were looking to get independence and uh, be able to do their own thing, that's going to kind of hurt that central authority idea that 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 uh, we just talked about a minute ago. Um, <clears throat> uh, you had wars going on, the Crimean War, Balkan Wars, uh, just several different uh, wars pulling the Ottoman Empire uh, in different directions and and just kind of showing sometimes uh, the, the vulnerability, especially as we got later and closer to that 1915 year, uh, we start to see really the, the weaknesses kind of exposed uh, of the Ottoman Empire. So just really know and understand that there's a steady decline going on and happening uh, within the Ottoman Empire. All right, the analysis of Jan de Vier's, uh historian of early modern Europe, the Industrious Revolution. And this was written in 2008, so it's about the Industrious Revolution. So basically, hopefully you recognize and realize, hey, I'm going to get a, a passage from this person uh, and, you know, I got to interpret it. And so that's the big thing is being able to interpret uh, the data. So uh, this person introduces the concept of the Industrious Revolution uh, and it's going to be kind of the, the counterpart to the industrial revolution. So don't, don't mix them up. Um, and so he's going to argue that there is a shift in the work ethic of ordinary people during the, the early period, modern period. Um, and it's driven by things like wage incentives, um, wanting to, to be diligent employees, um, and things like that. Alrighty. Um, and the Industrial Revolution is going to be characterized by uh, the expansion of household production and self-provisioning activities. Uh, families will start to do things. Um, think of like uh, textiles, like sewing uh, and whatnot. You know, th those kinds of things uh, will be done uh, at home. And, and it's used to supplement incomes and things like that, as well as provide for yourself. Uh, the French school data analysis, yet specific years there, 1877 to 1890, there is some data that you'll have to look at uh, on this, okay? So, you know, really knowing stuff about the French school system uh, isn't super important uh, as you will have the data in front of you that you'll look at. Uh, but just know a few things that happened during this time period. Um, laws were created to uh, kind of make free uh, and compulsory education for children, uh, six to 13. Um, it was really an attempt to move away from this elitist education and give everybody a chance uh, at education, okay? That was probably the biggest thing 
uh, that's going on. Uh, and then they built new schools um, and got teachers in there, started training teachers and stuff like that. All right, the cartoon analysis of the dreadnoughts. So that's not something that I, we can really talk about. Uh, the analysis, another uh, writing, the uh, Filippo Tommaso Marnati, uh, the Italian writer. <clears throat> You've got the futurist manifesto that you will have to take a passage for, or you'll get a passage from, and you will uh, talk about or not talk about, you don't have to write about it. You just have to answer a question about it. So read it, and then what's the, the influence, okay? Uh, in this work, um, they're crit critical of the, the traditional culture and norms of uh, art, okay? Uh, they're going to look to kind of break away from the past um, and tradition and start to enter the new world. Um, that was the, probably the big takeaway of this document. Alrighty. Uh, all right. The corn laws in Britain and then the repeal of the corn laws in 1846. Uh, so there's two separate things. Um, if you notice the indention, there's going to be a question on the corn laws and there'll be a question on the repeal. I think later on, on the test. All right. Uh, so first off, what were the corn laws? Well, they were based on the principle of protectionism. Okay. Uh, that means we want to uh, protect home domestic farmers uh, by imposing tariffs on imported items, grain uh, and the other farm, whatever, whatever farm stuff's being imported. Uh, so by doing that, if you're not familiar with what a tariff is, that is going to artificially inflate. Uh, well, first off, let me take a step back. Um, that is going to raise the cost of the corn, the grain, whatever we're, whatever we're talking about here. Um, because stuff coming in gets taxed. And so the, the supplier of that is going to raise their prices. Okay. And so that leads to this uh, artificial inflation of the price of grain uh, and other things uh, in England. All righty. Um, now, that's good in theory for the, the landowners, the farmers, and people like that. But the people buying the stuff, eh, not so good. And so the, the urban poor uh, are facing higher prices and it is it's it's not good for them all right so eventually uh there was a move a push to, to repeal uh those things uh and eventually um their the anti-corn law league anti-corn law league um is organized and they lobby and they will eventually get um the the corn laws repealed in 1846 uh, and that comes from the, the conservative government repeal, that repealed those things. All right. Uh, let's see. Next up, the Congress of Paris and the Congress of Berlin in 1870, so 1856 and 1878. Uh, if I remember correctly, the question on the test is going to kind of ask you to compare these a little bit. Um, so I think that's what's going on there. So let's do Paris first. Uh, this happens uh, after the, uh, and I, I say this differently every time. Uh, Crimean War, all right, 1853 to 1856. Um, and the objective here was to negotiate the peace settlement, right, for the, to end that war. Um, <clears throat> the key agreements, uh, it's going to, to end in the Treaty of Paris. There's a bunch of treaties of Paris, so don't get those confused. Uh, so we're going to demilitarize the Black Sea, we're going to recognize the Ottoman Empire's territorial integrity. Uh, and that's probably the big ones. 
All righty. Uh, Congress of Berlin happens after the Russo-Turkish War of 1877. And uh, this is the Ottoman Empire versus the, the Russians. And uh, it ends with a Russian victory. Okay. And the objective here was to, to come to the treaty, to the terms uh, of those. And it's going to be favorable to Russia since they won. And uh, they are going to get... With the Treaty of Berlin, uh, they're going to get Bulgaria recognized, um, and they're going to get some uh, areas of the Balkans, and uh, those are the big ones for that. Okay, Uh, let's see. Tsar Alexander II of Russia and his reforms. So he rules from 1855 to 1881, uh, and he is going to be the one that wants to reform and modernize Russia. Okay, uh, so a couple things that they do first, or he does. Uh, first off, is the emancipation of the serfs. Remember, the serfs were the people that were kind of tied to the land, and uh, he is going to abolish the serfdom system, uh, and really grant. I guess best way to say is grant personal freedom to all these individuals. They can now own property. They can own land. They can do really what they want to. Prior to this, they were really tied to the land and the landowner. And the landowner could tell them what to do and could not, didn't have to let them uh, do anything. Okay. Uh, and so that's going to be a big one. Uh, some judicial reforms, um, looking to modernize Russia's legal system uh, and make it fair for people uh, going to court. I think things like jury trials uh, and stuff like that. Uh, militarily, um, going to try and modernize the Russian armed forces. Uh, introduce universal conscription, so uh, basically a draft for everybody, uh, create reserve units, new military technologies, uh, things like that. Uh, educationally, going to try and modernize, th- that's the key theme here, modernizing um, these systems. So the educational system is looking to be um, modernized, uh, more schools basically uh, at every level, primary, secondary, um, get some universities founded. Uh, so those are the big ones there. Uh, 19th century Russian industrialization. So uh, Russia during this time period was um, really still based on agriculture. And so uh, there is a push, a move, I keep on saying push, but there's a move to, to industrialize Russia and kind of get it up to date with what's going on uh, in other parts of the world, specifically uh, Western Europe and whatnot. And so uh, Peter the Great, Tsar Peter the Great, is going to, to really be the one responsible for initiating a lot of these, these uh, reforms. Uh, and some of the big things um, is to establish state-owned factories, uh, bring in some new technologies that are going to be used in those factories, um, so that's the big thing is, is the, the Russian government is going to, to play a big role <clears throat> in, in moving the industry into kind of the, the updated uh, century, okay? Uh, get railroads going so we can ship things from, from place to place. Uh, so that is the, the big push in Russia at the time. All right, let's take a break and I'll be right back. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back. I am picking up with the 19th century political unification, specifically Italy and then Germany. Uh, So Italy at the time was very fragmented. It had all kinds of independent states and areas and territories and all that kind of stuff uh, going on. You had uh, kingdoms and city-states and just all kinds of stuff uh, happening. And so uh, one of the themes of this unit has been nationalism, and that is going to be something that's big uh, in Italy at the time. It's going to be... uh, uh, play a role in trying to unify all these different kingdoms, city-states, uh, and whatnot, and create one unified uh, Italian state, okay? Um, and so under the uh, leadership of King Victor Emmanuel II and uh, Camillo de Cavalc, the, the Cavalc, Cavour, I'm probably saying that very wrongly, and I apologize, uh, are going to look uh, to get Italy unified. Now, it's not as easy as just, hey, let's do this. Uh, it took some push. It took some some wars and conflicts um, to get Italy, um, you know, uh, unified. But eventually in 1861, um, King Victor Emmanuel II will proclaim that Italy is now uh, one. And so there's no more uh, regions. There's no more... Uh, Anything. It's, it's all one uh, in 1861. All righty. Germany uh, was also fragmented. It had all kinds of uh, territories and um, just independence. Okay. It was, was uh, Germany was very broken up and very, very much so. They were happy, uh, a lot of the people. Okay, with their free cities and and things like that. Uh, And so uh, there's a guy in Prussia, Otto von Bismarck, who's going to play a big role in in, uh, European history. Uh, He believed in something called real politic, and he wanted to strengthen uh, Prussia's position by making Germany into one. He thought that uh, by making a German state, basically, instead of all these little individual states that could be overrun very quickly and easily, uh, that it would make Prussia stronger. And so that was his goal and what he tried to do. Once again, just like with Italy, there's a series of wars that happened. We're not going to get into all of those, uh, but eventually Germany uh, is going to be uh, formally created um, in 1871, right, after the Franco-Prussian War, uh, King Wilhelm I of Prussia uh, is going to, to say, hey, you are um, a, a one unified state. Now, it took some work to keep it, but with Prussia's backing, it, it did work out. And you know, we have the Germany today. Uh, the Dreyfus Affair in 19th century France. So uh, Alfred Dreyfus was a army officer, and he was falsely accused and convicted of treason in 1894. Uh, And it comes from a leaked document, okay, 
that was passed, allegedly passed, excuse me, into uh, Germany. And Dreyfus was serving as a captain in the French army, uh, and he was arrested, tried, and convicted. Now, he was a French-Jewish army officer, and so uh, this happens during a time of uh, anti-Semitism in France, and that's where a lot of the uh, so the belief comes from the fact. Or, hold on, how am I trying? How am I trying to say this? Um, that fact is what people bl- believe why he was accused and arrested and convicted. Okay, uh, and, and the reason we're saying that is because eventually the there's evidence that's going to to, to come forward um, that there was somebody else that did it. But because this guy was was Jewish, uh, he was going to to be he was found guilty. Now, in 1899, um, <coughs> his sentence was commuted to just 10 years of imprisonment. Um, and eventually he did get out and was exonerated and did get reinstated. So uh, just a lot of drama uh, there uh, for a couple of years for Dreyfus. Uh, let's see. Passage analysis of Voltaire treaties on toleration. So Voltaire is an enlightened thinker. Uh, he will write extensively on freedom of speech, freedom of religion, were kind of his big things that he wrote about. And so once again, there'll be a passage uh, that you will uh, read and then analyze. But once again, uh, he writes extensively and a great deal uh, about religious tolerance, religious freedom, uh, no religious persecution. Uh, he is criticizing the Catholic Church. Uh, because of, of some of the persecution that they are doing at the time. Uh, and so he is just a big advocate for that, that freedom of religion uh, and then also freedom of speech. All right, the Irish Home Rule. So you've got a couple of British political groups also uh, here. Uh, so it's kind of a, a connected thing. First off, the Irish Home Rule movement is going to happen in the 19th century uh, as a, because at the time Britain uh, was over Ireland. Okay, so there's a lot of Irish desire uh, to, to basically rule themselves. And so they wanted to kind of separate from the crown, from the British, <clears throat> and move away, break away. Uh, and so that's the, the movement is, and, and the reason for it is because the Irish were tired of being controlled by the, the, uh, the British. Uh, the British political groups, there's a couple, uh, I mean, there's a lot, but a couple of them, the Liberal Party, uh, they supported Irish Home Rule. Uh, Conservative Party, they are going to oppose Irish Home Rule. The Unionist movement in Ireland uh, opposed Home Rule. They feared that it would uh, lead to to Ireland being dominated by Catholic nationalists. Um, So those are some of the big ones. All right, the People's Budget of 1909 in Britain. Uh, So Britain in the 20th century uh, faced social and economic challenges. Uh, they had all kinds of stuff going on in the, in the country uh, at the time. Uh, poverty was happening uh, quite a bit. And I, I say poverty was happening like it, it's just people were in poverty. Uh, inequality, right? Uh, just a lot of things happening. And so the chancellor of the time, uh, Lloyd George, is going to try and, and fix some of those things. Uh, and so that's where the idea of the people's budget comes from. Uh, and so some of the stuff he introduced is the taxation of the wealthy, uh, significant tax increases uh, on the wealthy. 
all right? Um, inheritance tax, uh, new social programs were introduced, uh, old age pensions, uh, unemployment insurance, so things like that. Uh, military spending, okay, uh, was going to be cut to try and fund some of these programs. So that is what that is about. Uh, analysis of Clemens von Metternich, letter to Tsar Alexander the First in 1820. So, uh, just it's it's a letter that you'll it's a passage, just like a lot of the stuff on this test is. Uh, just so you know, uh, Metternich was a Austrian diplomat, and um, he'll basically look to to maintain some stability uh, and uphold conservative principles in Europe. Um, and that was kind of the, at the heart of the letter that he wrote, wrote, um, he wanted to, to maintain this relationship, uh, and just keep once again, um, maintain the stability, uh, the syndicalist, and I, hopefully I'm saying that right. I'm probably not. Um, that is S Y N D I C A L I S T. Uh, this was a political an economic ideology uh, that's going to happen in Europe in the, the 19th and, and early 20th centuries. <clears throat> and it's mainly rooted around the idea that uh, workers can self-manage uh, and, and kind of do their own thing. So uh, it is going to advocate for the organization of, of workplaces under the control of the workers themselves. So basically kind of getting rid of the capitalist idea of, okay, here is uh, the boss, the CEO type and the managers and just let the workers work. Okay. Let them go, let them do their thing. Um, you're going to see some trade unions, some industrial unions pop up uh, as uh, under this. Um, and so that's uh, the big idea uh, with that. Liberal party beliefs during the 19th century. So a couple of things are going to happen here. Uh, individual liberty. So that's one of the things. Uh, freedom from government inter interference, basically, uh, is the idea behind that. Uh, constitutional reform. So make some changes. Uh, expand people's political rights. Expand participation in the government uh, through the reform of parliament, through the reform of voting rights, um, and, and try, just so the idea is to get rid of some of the corruption that's happening uh, at the time. Uh, the idea of limited government, so you know, put some restrictions on the government uh, of the time. So those are the big, big ideas there. The Salon des Refuse. Uh, this is the Salon of the Refused. If I remember correctly, there's a passage, but just so you know, uh, this happens uh, in 1863 in Paris. Uh, and it is going to showcase artwork that was rejected by the official uh, salon. Okay, uh, so that's that's where this comes from. <clears throat> uh, let's see, liberal reforms in the 20th century, uh, Russia. Okay, uh, so uh, there is a lot going on here. Um, you have a lot of. of political change. You have a lot of social change going on in Russia here at the time. Uh, and it's because some of the liberal reforms that come from uh, Nicholas II. Okay. Uh, and so this, the time frame here is like the early 1900s. And so you have just a lot of stuff going on. 
Um, <clears throat> so first off is the October manifesto. Um, it is going to um, call for basic civil liberties, like freedom of speech, uh, assembly, political parties, trade unions. So a lot of, of social stuff's being called for uh, in the October manifesto. <clears throat> Excuse me. You're also going to see the first elected parliament in Russian history uh, during this time period. Okay, uh, that's a big deal when you've been used to, to being ruled by czars and whatnot. Uh, some you know fundamental laws, uh, legislative consent, uh, things like that um, for uh, Russia, uh, and that is uh, kind of the big idea there. All right. Let me take one last break, and when we come back, we'll finish this up. All right, welcome back. Let's pick up with the Kruger telegram. Now, this was a communication between uh, Germany and South Africa. Okay, so Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany uh, and the president of South Africa, who was, uh, his last name was Kruger. All righty. Uh, and this telegram, basically, I'm not going to get into all the details, but it was to express Germany's support uh, for the group in South Africa, the Boyers, uh, the Boyer Wars going on at the time. And this is, uh, you know, conflict between the South Africans, the Boyers, um, and the British colonial forces. So uh, that's what it's about. Uh, and it's, it's, like I said, I'm not going to get into all the details. Uh, but it's just expressing Germany's support uh, because, hey, you know, if you can kind of weaken the, the British, then uh, that's that's a good thing, right, for the Germans. Uh, all right, next up is the white man's burden. And this is going to come from a poem of the same name. Uh, and it goes back to that first thing we said, the, the you know, Europeans' opinions of non-Europeans. Uh, and it's just this belief that... Um, or the feeling that it is the duty to bring civilization progress uh, to the, the uncivilized peoples of the world. All righty, and so that's that's that idea. The the and and where the imperialism comes from, the colonization comes from, uh, and all that kind of stuff is, is that hey, this is the the burden of us is to go in and civilize these individuals, these 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 groups, or whatever it might be. Uh, Pre-World War One alliance between France and Russia. So this is the Franco-Prussian, oh, excuse me, Franco-Russian, not Prussian, Franco-Russian with an R, uh, alliance. Uh, and it was formed in 1894, okay? And uh, it was looking to kind of stop. So we talked about how the, the Germany had been unified uh, and they're getting pretty strong. And so this is to kind of try and counter uh, some of the influence that the German Empire is accumulating along with Austria-Hungary, already, uh, And so they are, are going to just, uh, it's basically a defensive pact. Uh, these were, those were big back then was those defensive pacts uh, to try and stop, you know, if there is any kind of military action against us, you'll come in and help us out. And so that was the big thing uh, there. Now this is going to, to, to it's a threat as well to, uh, other European countries, you know, not just Germany, but um, other places as well, because you got these two pretty powerful groups at the time, the, the, the French and the Russians, uh, forming this alliance. And so it's it's something that um, will kind of scare and, and bring in other people. You know, England is going to join in eventually, and the, the, 
in the the sync session on uh, Tuesday the twentieth talked about the 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 alliance system that led to World War One, and, and this is kind of the start of it, the part of it uh, that's going to to be some of the basis of some of those uh, alliances that eventually lead to uh, the World War One stuff. So. Uh, let's see. Bismarckian system of alliance. This is a diplomatic strategy. Uh, Otto von Bismarck came up with this. That's why it's called the Bismarckian system. Uh, and it is once again just the attempt of Bismarck to, to keep balance and power in Europe. And at the same time, he wanted to safeguard Germany's security Okay, after it had been unified in the 1870s. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's... Bismarck's system of alliances uh, is all about those. It's, it's really a defensive pact and or pact. So uh, just trying to, to keep everybody happy, trying to keep everybody kind of what's what I'm looking for. Um, keep everybody connected. And so you try and keep uh, some peace uh, with this. All right. Uh, and it was pretty successful. Uh, for probably uh, 20 years or so. and uh, But once again, the, those alliances are going to be tied to the, the, uh, the First World War. Okay, The First and Second Moroccan Crisis. So these uh, involve some diplomatic confrontations that occur in Morocco during the early 20th century. Uh, and if you can imagine this, it involves uh, the European powers and some of their kind of competing interests uh, in the area. And it specifically is going to be Germany, uh, France, and England. Okay. Uh, so the first one was happened because of uh, a German visit to Morocco in March of 1905. And he said he supported Moroccan independence and questioned France's influence in the region. Now, of course, France is dominating North Africa at the time and, and you know, has their interests going on. And so they're going to be upset uh, there, so they're going to be upset with Germany, uh, France is, <clears throat> and they get England to kind of respond uh, to the Germans and say, hey, we back up France. We support France and their continued control of Morocco, uh, and eventually Britain is going to kind of diplomatically negotiate uh, an allegiance between um Germany and France, and they're going to reaffirm France's position in Morocco. Okay. The second crisis is in 1911, and this is once again going to involve France. Okay. Uh, France had dispatched troops to Morocco to put down a rebellion that was going on there. Germany uh, took this opportunity to kind of support the Moroccan independence and uh, once again, you have this diplomatic crisis that's happening, and France's ally Britain steps in, uh, backs France, and now you have kind of these tensions between France and Germany, Germany and England, Britain, whatever you want to call them, uh, and once again, this will get resolved in through diplomatic negotiations. That's why there's no fighting, no war, or anything like that. And uh, the Treaty of Fez is going to, um, once again, 
allow France to stay in control of their Moroccan interests. Uh, the first Balkan crisis, this is also known as the Bosnian crisis, and it happens in 1908, 1909, uh, and it involves some, some diplomacy, some disputes uh, between Austria, Hungary, Serbia, and Russia. Um, and uh, this is, so the Balkans is where uh, World War One is going to kind of kick off uh, with the, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. Uh, and this is one of those first things. And, and sometimes in, in books and, and readings, you'll see the Balkans as the, the powder keg of, uh, of, of uh, Europe. And, and that's, this is kind of where it starts is in those, those early years and, and probably even before we can go back further. Uh, but this is, is, is that um, this crisis. Okay. Uh, now, just like, with the Moroccan crisis, this is going to be uh, taken care of through diplomatic negotiations um, <clears throat> between Austria-Hungary uh, and the Ottoman Empire. Britain's Reform Bill of 1832, uh, it's also known as the Great Reform Act, uh, and this is going to uh, create changes to the electoral system and representation in Parliament. Um, it is going to make it to where more people can vote. So an expansion of, of the electorate is going to redistribute the seats of parliament uh, and bring in some new people uh, and more people uh, that have been kind of disenfranchised for a long time. Uh, and that's probably the big thing that you need to remember uh, about that. Early industries of industrialization, the big one is textile. Uh, then you got steel and iron, coal, uh, plays a role there, but textile steel is going to be probably the big ones. Napoleon III, he is the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, and he will become the first president of France uh, from 1848 to 1852, and eventually become the emperor of France from 1852 to 1870. Uh, and so he is going to play a big role in French politics, you know, from 1848 to, to 1870, probably even before that, you, you don't just become the president and then emperor without playing a role before you actually become uh, that. But um, a couple of key things about his, his time, uh, authoritarian rule, he is going to suppress political rivals, political opposition, uh, and you know, really turn it into kind of an authoritarian uh, government uh, in France uh, at the time. Uh, he does modernize and industrialize. That's uh, a big thing that he did uh, was kind of bring France into that, that time frame. All righty. Uh, let's see. Obstacle to German unification. So we talked about Germany being, um, being um, what you call it, fragmented. Uh, and so and you had people trying to, to bring them together. Uh, and, and just the big thing here is that fragmentation. Okay, is the German, you had all these Germanic tribes from back in the day, now they're Germanic states, and uh, they, that's the biggest obstacle that the German unification faced was trying to bring all these different groups uh, together, and especially since some of them have been fighting, like, so it, it wasn't like they all got along, oh, we speak similar languages, we have similar customs and things like that, they didn't get along all the time. And so that's a huge, huge deal. Nationalism, I think we know what that is. That is a political ideology where you kind of support your home country, your home people, your home nation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and uh, it, you know, it's a huge deal uh, throughout history uh, is people just kind of, I don't want to say blindly, but just, you know, they support their, their home state, their home areas. Uh, and it does lead to, to issues 
uh, around the globe. Uh, the Paris Commune, uh, a radical socialist and revolutionary government, uh, they're going to rule um, Paris in the 1870s, um, and it cap happens after the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, it's trying to be more democratic uh, and give rights to the, the workers, uh, allow popular sovereignty, so allow people to choose basically free elections and things like that, uh, separate the church and the state, um, and, and just this was really a people's movement, I guess would be the best way to say it. Chartist uh, was a working class movement in England during the mid-19th century, uh, and it wanted uh, political and social reforms, mainly the extension of voting rights uh, and democratic rights to the working class. Uh, at the time, they didn't have it. Uh, it comes from, or is born out of, I guess would be the better way to say it, out of the Reform Act of 1832, where you did start to see some voting rights being extended, extended but it still did not extend enough to the working class. And so that's probably the biggest movement uh, or the biggest want from this movement was those voting rights. Uh, diplomacy practiced by Cavour and Bismarck. So Cavour uh, was a proponent of real politic. Uh, and that is the uh, idea that uh, you know, prioritize uh, practical and, and strategic interests over ideological and moral consideration. So basically, um, even if it kind of goes against what I believe in, if it keeps the, the nation safe, uh, I'm going to go with it. All right. Bismarck is the same way. Uh, he is going to kind of be the, the uh, we'll say the father of real politic uh, and just looking to, to keep the balance of power in place and keep his place uh, at the table, basically. Okay. And, and he'll use military force when needed. Uh, Karl Marx, German philosopher, he's famous for the communist manifesto. Uh, and you know, the idea that the, the working class, uh, is never taken care of. And that is his, his whole thing, uh, is to, you know, kind of protect the, uh, the, the working class. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's something, you know, that people look at and think, well, hey, that's a good idea. It's going to get rid of some of the exploitation that happens in capitalism. Uh, but it seems to never work because people, we always want stuff, okay? Uh, and I want more than, than what you have, and you want more than what I have. And so we don't really like sharing everything. And so communism a lot of times sounds good to people, but sometimes it doesn't work out. Okay, uh, then there's some steel and iron numbers, I think, if I remember correctly, that you'll look at. That's why it says graph analysis. All right. Uh, your SAQ uh, deals with the French revolutions and the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, you'll need to be able to write about those. So just very quickly, uh, the French had a series of revolutions uh, based on months. So you want to look into these. Uh, the July Revolution in 1830. All This was the overthrow of King Charles. Uh, the February Revolution um, is going to lead to the French Second Republic. Um, the June Days Uprising in 1848, uh, this was a failed socialist and working class uprising against the French Second Republic. 
<clears throat> the coup d'etat of Louis Napoleon Bonaparte in 1851. Okay, um, he'll get rid of the National Assembly, declare himself the Emperor Napoleon III, and that ends the French Second Republic. Uh, the Paris Commune, which we talked about earlier, so I won't talk about that again. Uh, and then you get into um, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871. You'll want to look into that, uh, the military campaigns and the, uh, the just you know the the problems between France and Prussia at the time. I'm trying to go. Fast. I'm trying to wrap this up, so I apologize. And then finally, the LEQ, uh, the benefits and negatives of colonization, imperialism from 1850 to 1915. So a long time period there. Uh, and this is the most recent stuff we've read and looked into um, in in your in your stuff for the class. So hopefully it's something that you can be uh, pretty familiar with. Um, but some benefits, you know, uh, economically. Uh, the, the people that were colonizing did get natural resources that they were able to use, uh, created trade and commerce, trade routes, uh, commerce, uh, did build infrastructure, cultural exchange happened, uh, sending different things. Think of the Columbian exchange. Uh, I know not the same time frame, but um, something that you, you can kind of reference uh, as far as the cultural exchange. Uh, political stability was brought to some places sometimes. Some of the negatives, exploitation, inequality, you know, exploitation of the natives uh, being used as, as forced labor, uh, taking away their land, things like that. Cultural suppression, um, you know, uh, if the, the European powers didn't like some of your actions, some of the things that you did, uh, they would try and put it down change your languages, change your cultures, traditions, things like that. Uh, violence, repression, you know, uh, colonial rule is not done nicely a lot of times. And there was military force, um, massacres, human rights abuses. So it was not a pleasant time uh, really at all. Uh, and I think those are the big ones. Okay, there is the... The review for the the midterm. It was a lot of stuff. Uh, I'm sorry if you've made it this far that you listen this long. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, I will be on Sunday afternoon. If you have any questions, concerns, I'll send the time out uh, either Saturday or Sunday morning. Uh, it's not going to be going through this thing again, uh, but I will answer questions if I can. All right, guys. Best of luck on your midterm. Uh, best of luck on all your midterms. I hope you make hundreds on everything, and uh, I'll see you when I see you. Take care. Bye bye.